You're listening to a podcast from the 2020 National Climate Emergency Summit. Um, thank you so much for joining us after lunch into this session. We know that there's a lot of fabulous concurrent sessions on at the same time, so we're, we're very pleased that you've joined us for the local leaders uh, session, Wake Up Australia, and I am very privileged and very proud to be joined by this amazing um, amazing group of local and state leaders in Australia who have really been um, not only instigating um, the climate emergency declarations and actions in Australia, but turbocharging it. And, um, and so I'm really pleased that, um, that we're, we're able to hear a lot more from them. We're going to leave from this session not only being inspired, inspired, I'm sure there's a lot of people in this room um, involved who would like their local governments to declare a climate um, or biodiversity emergency. There are people in the room whose councils have declared a climate or, or biodiversity emergency um, and want to be inspired about um, how to, to get involved, what to do next, um, how do we move from a declaration to actually action on the ground. Um, so at the end of this session you will be inspired, we'll know what to do next and we'll know how to bring a lot more people along with us um, on the journey and we know that as we've heard in the earlier sessions today, Local government and state governments might be leading, or some state governments might be leading, um, but we need to amplify the voice to make sure that there's action at the national, um, national stage. And I'm sure that you'll agree with me after you've heard from these four speakers that um, if there's anyone to amplify and enthuse others, that it's the, the four of us that we're going to hear from today. So I, um, maybe from here actually, I'll let you know who is on the panel. Um, you've probably seen it on the program and you might recognize some people already, but um, we have Clover Moore, the Lord Mayor of Sydney. Again, someone that we can look to who still stands strong in the face of adversity. <laughs> um, and, and I've been a long admirer of, of your ability to stand up, especially in Sydney and the right-wing media there. So um, congratulations, Clover. Um, we have Shane Rattenbury, we, uh, Minister for Climate Change, Sustainability, the ACT Government. And Shane was the driving force behind ACT's declaration of a climate change emergency, making ACT the first Australian state or territory to acknowledge that we are in a state of emergency that requires action across all levels of government. And that's really a small component of what you've done. So thank you. And Trent McCarthy, oh goodness, we probably wouldn't be here today, perhaps without the leadership of Trent in the city of Darabin here in um, Victoria. Um, congratulations for being um, the first local government anywhere in the whole world. to declare an emergency on the 5th of December 2016, so, um, and we'll hear more about that, but congratulations to him and, and of course to the City of Darabin for the leadership there. And Carol Sparks, again, leadership in the adversity, you've got Barnaby as your federal member, and yet she's managed to declare a climate emergency for her council, of which she's the mayor of, and Glen Innes Severn Council in Northern Tablehands, New South Wales, so we're really pleased to have you here today.
and uh, we were going to be joined by the fabulous Vonda Malone, um, the Mayor of Torres Strait Shire Council. Unfortunately, she's unable to be here this morning, but um, I really want to recognise that she was going to be on the panel um, and recognise her leadership, and I understand that um, she's certainly building the movement up there for um, a recognition of a climate emergency as well. So we acknowledge her work, and unfortunately she's not here to join us, but um, it, uh, we acknowledge her leadership. Um, we are tight on time. I'm going to do now very little speaking. <laughs> I'm going to introduce our, our first speaker, Clover. She's going to give a presentation, and then each speaker will come up and give their presentation in order. I don't need to get in between them. And then we will call for questions from the audience. So you know how to do that through the Slido thing. Um, you'll send in through your questions. I will see um, the questions on the screen here. And so after all four have spoken, we'll get straight to questions from the audience to make sure that you have an opportunity to participate in our session as well. So without further ado, let's hear from the fabulous Clover Moore. <laughs> Thanks, Cathy, and hello, everyone. And I'd first of all like to acknowledge the original custodians of our land, the, uh, the, uh, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, and pay my respects to the elders, both past and present. Well, if ever a country and its government needed a wake-up call, it's Australia in 2020. As Richard Flanagan, award-winning Australian novelist, wrote recently in the New York Times, the name of the future is Australia. These words come from it, and they may be your tomorrow. P2 masks, evacuation orders, climate refugees, ochre skies, warning sirens, ember storms, blood suns, fear, eye purifiers, and communities reduced to third world camps. Billions of dead animals and birds bloating and rotting, hundreds of indigenous cultural and spiritual sites damaged or destroyed by bushfires, so many black Notre Dames. The physical expression of indigenous Australia, its spiritual connection to the land severed, a final violence after centuries of dispossession. Everywhere, there is brittle grief, and it may be as much as what is for coming as what has already gone before. And according to the American climatologist Michael Mann, who you have heard from today, he said it's inconceivable that much of Australia simply becomes too hot and dry for human habitation. The International Panel on Climate Change has told us that we have to limit global heating to 1.5 degrees to avoid the worst impacts of climate change. They've told us we need to achieve net zero emissions across the globe by 2050 to have anything better than a 50-50 chance of limiting heating to 1.5 degrees. People think that if the world meets its Paris Agreement targets, we'll be okay, but we won't. The UN has told us that with the level of commitments made under the Paris Agreement, we're on track to experience 3.2 degree, degrees of heating. So far, we've experienced 1.1 degree of heating and we've experienced the devastating bushfires and floods. The federal government's target of 26 to 28% reduction of emissions is pathetic and they're not even on track to meet that. According to the recent United Nations report, what is happening in Australia is one of the world's largest fossil fuel expansions with proposals for 53 new coal mines. 
Australia's fossil fuel industry is already huge, thanks to massive taxpayer subsidies, some $29 billion in 2015, according to a 20, 2019 paper by the International Monetary Fund. Every Australian man, woman and child is underwriting their own apocalypse to the tune of $1,198 per year. And yet only 37,800 people um, are employed in the coal industry. We're a global laggard, and that's shameful, because we are one of the wealthiest nations on earth, with access to some of the best renewable resources and some of the world's most innovative and creative thinkers. And it's our responsibility to move faster. The City of Sydney declared a climate emergency in June last year as a call to action, even though addressing global warming has been our top priority since 2008, when following a citywide consultation. 97% of people told us they wanted us to take action on climate change. So in 2008, we set a goal to reduce our emissions by 70% by 2030. We set targets and we worked to achieve them over the past decade. We were Australia's first carbon neutral council in 2007, and in 2017 we reduced emissions from our own operations by 25% and worked with others to reduce emissions citywide by 21%. But during this time, our economy grew by 37.5%, and our resident population grew by 45%. And if it had been business as usual, our emissions would have increased by 57%. So that's what happens if you don't do the work we do. It would be 57% emissions in the city. In 2019, I signed an agreement for our operations to be powered by 100% renewable electricity by, by July this year. This means that we will achieve our 70% 2030 emissions reduction target by 2024, six years early. as well as supporting jobs on solar and wind farms in regional Glen Innes, Wagga Wagga and Shoalhaven. This agreement will save our ratepayers $500,000 a year over 10 years. So, following the Paris Climate Agreement in 2015, we set an even more ambitious goal to reach net zero emissions by 2050. But, if we are to have any chance of limiting warming to 1.5 degrees, we need to reach net zero emissions across the globe before 2050. And Australia has a critical role to play. We are a high per capita emitter. We have a high GDP and we have rich renewable resources. But most importantly, as the driest continent on earth, we are on the front line of global warming. We can and must do more. We need to be in a strong position to argue to those big emitters like China, the United States and India and others to reduce their emissions and keep our planet below 1.5 degrees. So, yes, I want to congratulate the organisers of this critically important Melbourne Climate Summit, which the City of Sydney will follow up with the Sydney Climate Summit from the 33rd, 31st, of Mar 31st of March to the 2nd of April which we are hosting with the C4, C40. This is an international organisation of global mayors that are committed to addressing climate change. 
Sydney and Melbourne have been members since 2007 and we've been working with those other cities around the world. C40 is important because cities generate 70 to 80% of emissions. So whilst national governments have failed us, cities have been taking action. And, and I, I do urge many of you to come to Sydney because we need to send a really strong message that the two biggest cities in Australia, the capital cities of Australia, that, that, uh, that have the most of the economic activity and the highest populations are calling for action. So we really want to hear your voices in Sydney as well as your effective voices here in Melbourne. And so to conclude on a, a, as positive a note of, as possible, I refer to Ross Garneau who foresees that if we rise to the challenge of climate change, we will emerge as a global superpower in energy, low carbon industry, and absorption in the landscape. And Ross Gittins says that to maximize our chances of benefiting from the move to a low carbon world, we have to get to net zero emissions sooner than the other rich countries, not later. And that's why Australia urgently needs a wake up call. Thank you. Well, thanks, Clover. I come from Canberra. That's the Canberra that's the home of the Ngunnawal people, our traditional custodians, and home to 430,000 citizens who are doing our best to be as sustainable as possible. There's the other Canberra that you've heard about a lot today. It's where all these fly-in, fly-out workers come <laughs> to go to Parliament House, and they're actually your representatives, so we don't lay claim to them. <laughs> In May 2019, the ACT Legislative Assembly declared a climate emergency. So far, the first and unfortunately only state or territory in Australia to do so. Up on the screen are some facts about why it is a climate emergency for Canberra as well as for the planet. We've had the angry summer of 2019 and now the 2020 summer of fury. As the person responsible for climate change in the ACT government, it's pretty gut-wrenching for me that I can't remember off the top of my head all of the records we have broken in the last two summer when it comes to temperature records in our jurisdiction. The one that's not on there is that up until the year 2000, there were, about nine, there were nine days above 40 degrees in Canberra. We've recorded nine days above 40 degrees in the last 14 months. That's an extraordinary change from last century to this century. Unlike the Prime Minister, I do not accept that we just have to adapt and be a little bit more resilient. I, we have a responsibility for our fellow citizens, for the fellow creatures that we share this planet with, and for future generations to fight with every last breath we have to tackle this climate emergency. The ACT's journey started in 2008, when myself and some fellow Greens members of Parliament were elected into the balance of power. And we made it a condition of government to share power with the Labor Party, that we legislate greenhouse gas reduction targets. We set a target that we wanted to achieve a 40% reduction in emissions by 2020 on 1990 levels, using the proper baseline, not some of these shifting baselines that you see. I'm happy to come here today and tell you we're absolutely on track to achieve that, and by the end of this year, we will have cut our emissions by 
one of the key ways we've achieved that is to move ourselves to 100% renewable electricity. We achieved that on the 1st of January this year. We commissioned a series of new wind and solar farms across the country, 640 megawatts of it, so that when Canberrans flick the light switch, when they plug their devices in, they know that that is being charged by green power. And according to Australia Institute research, we're only the eighth jurisdiction in the world and the first outside Europe to achieve that milestone. So there's a little bit of Canberra pride in that one. I can also let you in on a little secret. What this means is that when Craig Kelly, Barnaby Joyce and Matt Canavan fly into Canberra and go to work at their office in Parliament House, they're working in an office powered by 100% renewable electricity. <laughs> now, why declare a climate emergency? Lots of people are doing it. Well, we've, when I introduced this motion into our Parliament last year, the sort of things I talked about were, it's a trigger. It's a trigger for action. It's a signal to our community and to the business sector just how serious this issue is and the sort of steps we need to take to get it done. And it's a, a reminder to everybody in government, not just the ministers that sit around the cabinet table, but to every public servant in our agencies, that every decision we take needs to reflect on that declaration of a climate emergency and ask, is what we are doing today making a positive impact in tackling the climate emergency. That's what declaring a climate emergency means. Now, simply declaring a climate emergency is not enough. You need to put the steps in place to actually get the emissions reduction that needs to go with it. In the ACT, we have now, having achieved our 2020 target, said, well, what's next? And we've now legislated a series of targets going forward carbon neutrality by, 25, uh, by 2045, but with a series of targets in the meantime. And these interim targets are particularly important because setting a target out at 2045 is kind of easy. I won't be in Parliament in 2045. I won't be held to account for it. But along the way, we need to make sure that our parliamentarians are being held to account for it. And as a community, we are holding ourselves to account. If we miss a target in 2025, we need to reflect on that and redouble our efforts to make sure we don't miss the next target. And so that you can see on the screen both our historic emissions trajectory, the dramatic cut that's come from moving to 100% renewable electricity, and then the pathway going forward. Our challenge now is quite different. Having cut all of our electricity emissions out, 62% of our emissions come from the transport sector, mostly private motor vehicle use. Another 22% comes from natural gas usage. And so they're the big challenges that lay ahead of us. How do we cut those emissions? Late last year, we released a new climate strategy. It's available online if you're interested. There are 98 actions in it because tackling greenhouse gas emissions, there's no single easy bullet or thing that you can do. It's really lots and lots of small decisions that really add up and make a big difference. We have committed to make sure our ACT government fleet of vehicles is 100% zero emission vehicles, and our passenger fleet will be in the next three years. We've already got 70 or 80 vehicles in the fleet, and in using those, we've discovered that there's an 80% reduction in running costs on those vehicles compared to a comparable ICE vehicle. So we're showing that not only is it possible, 
but it's also quite cost-effective as well. We've committed to phase out gas, natural gas use, the first government in Australia to do so. And we want to massively build our canopy cover in the city. Let me simply conclude on a few thoughts that I have on what the essential elements are for climate action. We need to vote for leaders who take this seriously, who don't obfuscate, who don't deny the science, but actually are committed to real action. We need the will to take bold decisions. We're going to get 100% renewable electricity and we're going to get there. They're the sort of decisions we need governments to take. We need a sustained effort. It has taken us a decade to get this far, but if you commit to it, and you stick to it, you get there. We have proved what is possible. And you need community support and involvement. We need our communities demanding better from our leaders. So let's all demand better. Let's go forward and tackle a climate emergency with passion, with commitment and optimism. Thank you very much. I'd like to begin by acknowledging that we are on the lands of the Wurundjeri Wurrung people of the Kulin Nations and the Bunurong people of the Kulin Nations, and to acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded and that the fight for climate justice is intimately linked uh, for the fight for Indigenous rights around the world. Um, my name is Trent McCarthy. I'm the first, I, put, I had the privilege, in fact, of putting the first uh, climate emergency declaration of any government in the world on the 5th of December 2016. And I, this is pretty good. <laughs> I also remember that date because it's my daughter's uh, seventh birthday, and she's now 10, so it's three years ago. Um, that's how I count my years, by how, how long it was since we declared the climate emergency and when I made that promise to her that I was really going to step up my game. I've been a local councillor since 2008, elected literally within weeks of, uh, of Shane being elected to the ACT. And there's no race between Darabin City Council and the ACT government. I'll just let you know that, um, although maybe there should be. Um, because one of the things about local governments is that we love to lead and we love to go out on a limb. And uh, many of you, I know, live in communities where you want your governments to lead. Um, and I want to share with you some of the things that happen when a government takes that position and actually leads. Hopefully that'll appear. I've got a presentation. We'll get that up in a moment. One of the things that's been really interesting about Darabin's journey over the last three years is the fact that we have had to look at not only making the declaration, but actually how we sustain the program of action that's required to meet the emergency that we face. So it's not just about, and there we go, so it's not just about making a declaration, it's actually about saying what are the practical steps of change that are going to make a difference within the powers that we have. And local government doesn't have all the powers, I wish it had a lot more powers, um, but we've tried to exercise those powers as far as we can. So in the corner there you can see some of our pensioners, and they are some of the 4,000 households that we're installing solar on over a four-year period. We're doubling renewable energy in Darabin over a four-year period from 18 megawatt hours to 36 megawatt hours. Now that <laughs> That's really important because these households are particularly pensioner households, low-income households, people who have a fear often of the rising energy bills that they face and therefore don't, um, aren't able to cool their houses during heat waves and then they become vulnerable to heat island effect, which we have a lot of in the city of Darabin. So we want to make sure that those people can stay cool during heat waves and the way we do that is putting solar on their roofs with no upfront costs. 
And for us, that's been one of the most profound things, is actually turning people who may have not engaged in the climate debate at all, may have not even had a, a rich and broad understanding of what's going on at the global level to be part of the action in their own homes and, in fact, on their own roofs. And the level of pride that people have when they say, I'm doing something for my grandkids and I'm keeping myself safe um, has been profound. And we talk about them um, as, as our nonnas because they are mostly Italian grandmothers and reservoir that led the charge in this. So we talk about it as the nonna effect. Um, the other thing that we've done at, at Darabin is, is really sort of ask the question, how do, we, oh, get that up again. how do we make sure that we can measure and be accountable for the action program that we've put in place? And so this is actually about putting it, not only a climate emergency plan, but putting it in our council plan, making sure that we have measurable targets, things that our community can hold us accountable for. And if your council has declared a climate emergency and they're just on the start of this journey, they, they may not get it right every step of the way, but as long as they get, keep going, they'll be doing exactly the sorts of things that Shane was talking about before. We also have taken a philosophical position, which is that we believe it's our responsibility as a government and the responsibility of all governments to provide maximum protection for our citizens, for people that travel through our area, that study, um, for all living life, uh, everything within our community needs to provi be provided with that maximum protection. It is such an important c concept that we cannot accept the rhetoric that is coming from the Prime Minister at the moment that we somehow will adapt. We're not going to grow gills. It's not going to happen. We're not going to learn how to have um, the ability to withstand the fire events that we've experienced. We need to change how we live and we need to respond to the climate emergency at the local and the global, global level. I just want to share with you a little story though, and this for me typifies what happens when a council declares a climate emergency and how it can actually go into that mobilisation mode. And we're really only at the start of that journey and we have to maintain it. There are 79 local councils in Victoria and they are all part of what are climate, we call climate alliances or greenhouse alliances. And I'm really pleased to say that one of the things that we put in our climate emergency plan was to say if we're going to go to 100% renewable energy in Darabin, then how can we help other councils do the same? And last year we managed, after a good couple of years of work, um, to get 48 local councils to come together and collectively switch their energy, their, renewable, their electricity consumption to renewable energy. Most of them are going to 100%. For most of those councils, they didn't have a renewable energy target to begin with. They haven't declared a climate emergency, but they're taking that significant action. And now we're saying, right, you're taking that action, now you need to declare an emergency if you haven't done already. Although many have. In fact, there are now 88 local councils in Australia, including the ACT government, that have declared climate emergencies, and we are part of a movement of over 1,350 around the world, government jurisdictions, that have declared climate emergencies. This movement is at the start, and it will only continue to grow. In relation to this project, though, what has been profound is the fact that we've managed to effectively switch um, the same as 87,000 cars or 47,000 households um, from fossil fuels to renewables. And for me, that's about mobilisation, not just talking rhetoric, not just the sort of stuff that we hear from some of our politicians in Canberra, not the ones in the ACT government, but in the other house, um, is actually mobilisation. And when we had to do this, we had a thousand people that we had to convince across Victoria to make this happen. We have so much more work to do though, and that's why the united front of local councils going forward is so important to Australia's climate emergency action. I want to share with you, because it's obviously we've had a couple of pictures of Greta today, um, but one of the things that happened is in, in August 2018, Greta Thunberg did her first strike at the, at the front of her parliament. At the same time, in our own parliament in Victoria, um, the state government adopted the new Planning and Environment Act. And if you do a word search of that act, 
and you search the word climate, not one appearance of the word climate appears in that piece of legislation. And yet this is the piece of legislation that directs and drives about 80% of local government decision making. So for councillors, the frontline work now is the fact that we do not have the powers that we need to keep our community safe. So whilst a 15-year-old girl was able to take a, start a massive movement, we need governments to match the strength of that student movement and keep going, keep going fast and deliver that relentless optimism and that radical collaboration that, uh, that world leaders have been promising but not delivering for the decades past. Thank you. Good afternoon. I would like to pay my respect to the traditional owners of the land, to their elders past, present and emerging, and to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people here today. On Monday the 10th of February, I watched the television in horror at seeing my brave and fearless friend, Mayor of Shoalhaven, Amanda Finley, standing in the water rushing through her town and telling the world and the community that they will get through the devastation and the people will survive and recover in the aftermath. We, the people of Australia, have been challenged by the Prime Minister to be resilient and adaptable. We have also been challenged by our youth by Greta Thunberg, their leader. Her simple message, adults of the first world have allowed our planet to be trashed, dug up and burned. We are watching our iconic native animals and forests and our warming seas die before our eyes. We, the adults, have stood by and allowed greed and power-hungry men and women to destroy our planet and our future. We, the people, have allowed this to happen because we are vulnerable and weak. We have our families to consider, our own lives to live. We have to be educated, to own a house, to run a farm, to make money, to pay mortgages, and run businesses and to feed ourselves. Now we must stop and take a look at what is happening. We must consider the viruses that have emerged and what that means to us. I have risen to Greta's accusation and accepted her truth by calling out the obvious. This is climate change we are experiencing these fires, floods and drought is the result of continued human intervention in the natural cycles of the earth. The warming of our planet is changing the weather patterns and we watch as our native animals become extinct before our eyes. We have allowed the destruction of forests of the world and the sea and watch as the human rubbish forms islands of plastic in the sea and on the land. We watch and experience as the creatures and people choke as they inhale the smoke and toxic fumes. 
In September 2019, after listening to Greta, I wrote a mayoral minute. Gleniness Severn Council declared a climate emergency and a commitment for a more sustainable future for our community. This was supported by my three colleagues on council, none of which were green. I also requested our GM to convene workshops with councillors and staff to work out how we were going to do that and then to invite the community to add to their ideas. Barely a fortnight later, our community was facing catastrophic fires right across our region. And on the 8th of November, my own little village was nearly burnt to the ground with two people killed by the fire. I am not recovered. I am truly deeply affected, never to recover. Not only by the loss of my family home and community and the ability to live there, but the loss of 87% of the wildlife that I've shared my life with. My village of Waitalabar has been extensively backburned in the months prior to the November fire. My husband, my daughter and myself spent days protecting our house as a slow-burning fire approached. And we were helped by local fire brigades and brigades from all over the country and Canada. The stories are similar all down the eastern seaboard and inland of Australia, and many people killed and injured, burnt, burnt out, nearly burnt out, properties and stock killed and damaged, and businesses destroyed. Glen Innes is traditional Ngurrubal country of the nation Gumarai, stretching far to the west and some to the east. 230 years of mismanagement of the land and waterways that are the lifeblood of our earth has seen the rivers and creeks dried, town water depleted despite extensive dams and auxiliary infrastructure, agricultural viability threatened and native habitat all but destroyed, including the last of the World Heritage Gondwana wet rainforest ecosystem that has now burned for the first time known to our records. Shameful mismanagement. We are watching as our iconic native animals, the koala, the platypus, the emu, the king parrot, the rock wallabies, the pygmy possums, squirrel gliders, butterflies, moths, lizards, snakes, and the wedge-tailed eagle, and too many more, die and become extinct. I want to thank Greta for her bravery, her absolute honesty and truth, and her simple and profound words. It is her speeches that motivated me to speak up. She made me feel ashamed to be an adult in this destructive, greedy, and power-hungry world. Yes, this is the effects of climate change, and we'll have to deal with it now as in mopping up after each weather event, whatever that is, and the relentless search for how it is used, how it used to be, and the realisation that it will never be again. And for the future, our lives are dependent on a functioning ecosystem, and a good government must understand that the natural world is the cradle of our descendants. 
A good government understands that the ecosystems on which we survive itself survives, is nurtured, treasured and protected, not exploited for tax-free profits in the current financial year. A good government heeds the advice and warnings of seasoned professionals in fire management, climatology, water and land management. Instead of scorning and mocking those who have dedicated their lives to understanding the ecosystem that will sustain our great-grandchildren, including my own. A good government listens to and acts on the science. To scientists who have achieved the highest academic achievements in our education system, to which all Australians aspire to, want their children to aspire to, and what is the end result of their educated life? No respect from our government. The reality is unsustainable economic priorities are produced, have produced unsustainable environmental conditions and that now pose a threat to the very fabric of our civilisation. Our Prime Minister wants the people, the communities affected by the drought, fires and floods, to be resilient and adaptable. Mr Prime Minister, are you and is the government? Thank you. Well, I was right at the start in saying that the power and the, and the leadership is at the local level and will include the, you know, ACT in, in that, of course. Um, we've heard some amazingly inspiring stories and hopefully, as, as I took from that, some really concrete examples of how we do move from declaring emergencies to actually implementing and accelerating the action um, that those declarations talk about. We've certainly heard, um, you know, about some that they are about triggering action. They're about signalling the seriousness of the issue, but it's about making sure that we put the right steps in place to achieve the visions that we have. Um, we've heard you know, Clover talk about the strong targets that the City of Sydney um, have put in place, but brought them forward as a result of the of climate emergency. And I thank you, Clover, because we at the City of Melbourne will be considering also bringing forward our net zero emission target this Tuesday. So I think as a result of this summit, as a result of Clover being here, that's what we're gonna be doing on Tuesday as well, hopefully, fingers crossed. <laughs> and, um, and we've certain, and goodness me, the ACT, of course, you go to the ACT and you're reminded of the will of a, of a government and the achievement of, that, of what you've done around renewable energy is quite extraordinary and we certainly look to, to Canberra as a beacon of renewable energy and if only, as you say, those that are enjoying the benefits of 100% renewable energy are taking that back to their community and, and voting um, in that way in our federal parliament, that would be fabulous, but they're not. But let's make sure that they are as a result of the, momen the momentum that we've got in the, in the town hall today. Um, and Trent, 
certainly you gave us some great examples as well um, of, of the importance of the actions to the community and, and, it's, and that not everyone can, can invest lots of money or, and not everyone can, um, and not even, not, and it's not a, sorry, individual necessarily doesn't have to do a lot, but they can have a council that can act on their behalf and aggregate and, and act on their behalf. And you've done that certainly in Darabin and, and some great examples that you've put forward there. And we only need to hear from you, Carol, to understand that it's not an invisible, it's not intangible, it's very real. And, and it's really important for those of us, especially in the room that are from metropolitan or capital cities, to hear from, from the, the people at the front line um, and make sure that the decisions that we are making in cities like Melbourne and Sydney are reflective or, and, and are just as important um, in supporting communities like yourselves. But thank you for speaking from your heart and, and um, we, certainly, we certainly heard that. We've got time for questions from the audience. I'm uh, hoping that there's some, you know, more exam more questions. Um, I don't have questions on the screen at the moment, although I, I, I can see some words. I don't know what the start of the question says, but uh, what is council's role in moving from climate neutral operations to climate neutral communities? Okay, that's a question. Would you like to start with that one, Trent? I'll, I'll give that a go. I think it's a fantastic question. So. Um, the reality is that um, you need to do both um, and you need to do both as quickly as you can because if you don't um, support your community as a, as a local government person to transition as quickly and, and fairly as possible, then they're right to ask the question, well, it's good for you, but what about us? We're the ratepayers, we're the residents. But by the same token, you need to get your own house in order. So we've taken this dual track approach, which basically says that we will um, invest in, collaborate, aggregate, and mobilise our community on both fronts. Um, so the, the Solar Saver program I mentioned before was really about those people who cannot do, do it themselves um, or need that help. And I'm really pleased to say we're ahead of target in terms of that program. So we said 4,000 buildings in four years. We've got 1,000 people on our waiting list. There are literally not enough solar installers to actually support that. So the demand is extraordinary. But by the same token, if we don't do things that make a difference, in, then we are not actually leading by example. And so those principles of aggregation, collaboration on optimism have to run through everything we do inside and outside the council building. Yes, I've just been um, told that there's a very strong connection between Gleninus, Canberra, and soon to be Sydney, in that we, our wind farms are going to be selling green power to the cities, which is fantastic. But we need the government to put more funding into that renewable energy. I'll pick up on your point, Trent. I think that whether it's council or local government, we're sort of kind of a local government and kind of a state government. It's a funny mix. But you can play a really triggering role in making things happen, not only in your own operations, but for example, our commitment to have all of our government vehicles to be zero emission vehicles, they're on a three-year lease or a four-year lease, and so at the end of it, they become second-hand vehicles that are then available to our community. So we use some of our buying power to get things moving. And the community can also see them. Our community nurses get around in these electric vehicles. They drive about 100, 150 k's a day as they go around and see all of their clients. One of the funny stories they've reported back to me is they rock up now and they knock on the front door and the, the patients say, oh, I didn't hear you pull up. <laughs> and so it starts this whole conversation about the electric vehicles and our community nurses have become ambassadors for what's possible and what some of the new technology is and how, frankly, practical it is. So I'll, yeah. 
So the city of Sydney, 75% of our residents live in apartments. It's a different situation from suburbia where individuals can put solar panels on their roof. So we have a green apartment uh, uh, program where we're working with the community and um, we're getting 100 apartments to work with us each year. Um, we also have a, a, a grants program where we encourage groups in the community to come forward with their own programs and, and so we facilitate them doing that work. And um, I, I think we, we have certainly shown that we're committed to doing what we're doing in our own operations, but what we're achieving across the city is because we work in partnerships. We work in partnerships with the owners of over 50% of, of the commercial buildings in the CBD because that's where the emissions are coming from. Um, and we have just recently developed a partnership with the entertainment hospitality industry called Sustainable Destination Partnership. And when you think about theatres and ho hotels and the amount of missions they use 24 hours a day, so they're all committing to our goals. And already the Better Buildings Partnership, the, the commercial owners in the CBD, they've got their emissions down by 56% already and they're on track to 83%. So it is quite fantastic. And um, we work with tenants in buildings too through our City Switch program, which has gone national. Melbourne's involved in that too. So, so there, there are a lot of programs we can do with the big end of town and the little people and everyone's really keen to be involved. And, and so that's how we're enabling our community to also share in achievement uh, just as we are. Um, that was a good segue to the question I actually wanted to ask while we're waiting for um, more questions from the audience. But I'm, how do we make sure uh, within our government structures, which, you know, unfortunately, we, not unfortunately or fortunately, that you need to order things in some way, and there are silos. And I find that, you know, so much of the work around climate action um, does come from uh, the particular silo within our governments that might have environment, sustainability, or climate change in their title. But it'd be great if you had some examples of how other areas of, of council are responding, because I know at the City of Melbourne I'm incredibly proud of the work that um, our Arts House has been doing for many years, and their series called Refuge, um, which is a, you know, a community response to climate action and climate change, and how do we make sure that we bring the community along um, in decisions around resilience and, and acting on climate change, and, and, and also our events team. We're very proud that, that many of our events are now carbon neutral and leading the way um, in sustainability. But so I'd be interested in you know, a reflection on how do we make sure that this isn't the hard, we have a lot of hard work from our sustainability teams, but how do we make sure we bring the whole of council into the decisions that need to be made if we're genuinely going to be acting on a climate emergency? Well, we committed to Sustainable City 2030 in 2008, and we have expected all of our staff right across the board to be champions of, uh, of, of, climate, of taking action on climate change, and they are, right from the people that collect the garbage right through to um, our Director of, of Sustainability. Um, and that's just, if you come to work at the City of Sydney, that's what it is expected of you. And we, um, we have attracted really talented people who want to work with us because they believe in what we're doing. And I echo Clover's point on that. I think once the leadership of government at whatever level makes clear what you're trying to achieve, the people that work for us are very good at picking up on that. We've just opened our first all-electric school in Canberra. We said we're not having gas in this school and traditionally people had said you need gas for big heating and cooling systems mm. and so now that's just the way we it's the standard as we build the next school that's of course the way we do it and so you change that philosophy 
Our emergency services agency even is now organising to get the Southern Hemisphere's first electric fire truck. Oh, and so even our emergency personnel are getting in on this. And once you set that standard, people just want to be involved. Yeah, that's fantastic. There's um, three principles that I think we've been putting into practice to try to do this, Cathy, which um, seem to be working, although sometimes they don't go as fast as you want them to. So one of them is education, another one is accountability, and the third one is advocacy. So when it comes to education, we had some of our climate activists who are on our internal think tank come and educate 27 council managers, so people that actually make real decisions about real things that run in our community. Coming out of that meeting, coming out of that workshop that they ran, uh, the, the gentleman who was in charge of the roads resurfacing program came in, stopped the contract and said, we need to find a zero emissions product to resurface our roads. Now our roads are basically resurfaced with recycled tyres and other content, um, which is a massive shift. So you need to give people the thing so that they can take action in their sphere of work. There are 100 service areas in most councils and everyone has a role to play. Likewise, um, we actually tasked our executive management team to work out how they make accountability around the climate emergency and they put climate emergency is the number one strategic risk for the organisation, which means that every single department of council actually has a responsibility to report on what they're doing. The third one is the powers. Our planners do not have the powers to keep our communities safe. So they need to actually have a voice in this conversation because they're making decisions all the time that influence what is and what isn't built. And I think that's how we integrate across an organisation. Yes, I... I think that we're just at the beginning of that and um, given um, who's in charge of our electorate, it's a, quite a difficult job, but um, I'm doing my best and we're looking at our emissions and we're working on it um, in a very um, dedicated way. So I'm hoping that, you know, the voters will see that there's an error in their ways and that they need to think about it at the voting box. So we do have a question here. So how can citizens engage in, a, in electorate? So if your electorate isn't engaged um, or in the climate and it's not a, a priority, how can we, you know, how can citizens get involved even if their level of government that represents them isn't? Uh, we can't think of anything but what's happening with the climate at the moment, given the disastrous um, effects that the fires and the floods are having. So, you know, if, if citizens aren't thinking about climate, then perhaps they need to go somewhere else because um, we need to think about the climate and, and have our emissions policies put in place and to be lobbying our, our ministers to um, change their ways. It's a bit of a cliche, but people often talk about, you, know, you should bring up an MP or bail them up when you see them in the supermarket. Don't underestimate it. It's surprising how often people don't come and talk to us about issues. And so I'd always say, if you get a chance, have that personal conversation. The other thing that I think is really empowering, and Trent made this point earlier in his comments, in every bit of our lives, we have an opportunity to make an influence, whether it's being on the organising committee for the school fate, or in the job that we do, or in all those facets of our lives, our local sporting club, there are sustainability decisions that can be made in, in all the things that we do. And so I think we're all very empowered to make those contributions and those things build up because they start to create examples, they inspire others, and I think it builds momentum that then, frankly, the MPs can't ignore. I think if people don't think about um, 
rising emissions and climate, then the summer we have just experienced, the next one will be much worse. And people have to understand that this is the beginning of our future. Uh, and and, and if we've really moved beyond just talking about this, we're really into everyone taking action at, at whatever level they can and making sure they elect people who will take that action as necessary. If they don't, if we don't, we don't have a future at all on, uh, in Australia, as, as Michael Mann said before. So this, this, is critical, this is critical time for us. And if we don't take this action over the next decade, well, then it's too late. <laughs> um, we're pretty fortunate here in Victoria because if you live in Victoria, we have a local council elections in October. If your community and your council is not engaged in climate action, stand for council. Um, you need to be there um, because it's not until everyday people step up and take on leadership roles that actually change happens. And I'm going to let you. <laughs> and we're all just people that put our hands up and fill out a, a nomination form and happen to get our friends and colleagues and sometimes even parties behind us. But anyone can do that, and you'd be surprised how many, in particularly in Victoria, in regional communities and rural communities, um, how many positions go uncontested. So it is literally that I put my name up and I became a councillor in some places. You can do it. I really hope to see you all elected by the end of the year. Yeah. <laughs> all of you. All of you. Um, but you don't actually have to be elected to make a difference. They, don't, they say that local, although I do also encourage you to put your hand up, but um, they say local government is the closest level to the people for a reason. <laughs> you actually can turn up to council meetings and ask questions, write submissions, and... and we try to respond to them. But the most important um, activity that we do every year, and most people in the room, if you're involved in local government, either elected or in a, in a policy writing position, is that you're preparing your annual plans right now. You're writing your budgets right now that will be endorsed and adopted in June. When we put our council budget and our annual plans out to the community, we actually don't get enough responses back, if you ask me. And we have a council meeting that you can come into and you get to ask questions and you can interrogate, and we often get two or three people. But this is really powerful position for anyone to be in. You can actually, if your council has declared a climate emergency, have they actually put into their budget, into their plans, into their annual um, initiatives, something actually that reflects the declaration that they've made? So I think, as Clover said, we've, we've gone beyond talking. We've got the declarations. Now we actually need to put our money and our policies and our plans where, we're, you know, where our mouth is and make sure that you interrogate those budgets interrogate those annual plans and do they actually reflect what I believe is the, the mood of this room that we need a lot more and, and we do need to make difficult decisions. We need to cut out things that are not essential um, and we need to invest a lot more if we're going to actually reduce or bring our targets um, or, down. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So we only have one minute left. Um, we have no more time for, for uh, questions, but I don't know if we do have a, like, a 10 seconds each to inspire everyone to, you know, to really take these declarations to action forward. I'm start with you, Trent. You've got the microphone. Okay. So I'd just like to say again, thank you for organising this climate summit. And we are doing it in Sydney too. And I think it's really powerful of the two major cities of Australia speaking loudly and clearly um, with their communities that the federal government has to get its act together and start acting responsibly and start getting our emissions down. It is a climate emergency.
I'm going to share with you something. Tomorrow morning, uh, over 150 local councillors and um, local government workers are coming together um, to work together for three hours, work intensively, work harder than they've ever worked before to form a national network to bring all the climate emergency declared councils together and those that are on the cusp of that as well and to actually work out how we can exercise maximum influence through the political system and do exactly what our communities have been calling for. So um, there'll be an announcement about that later tomorrow. Um, they are coming together. They don't all work, usually work on a Saturday morning, but they're coming in for that. It's so exciting, and uh, we're trying to provide the climate leadership that Australia needs. Good. I want the Prime Minister to change his mind on climate change. <laughs> I want him to call a climate emergency national one, and I want him to concentrate on reducing emissions nationally. I would simply say take away from this weekend the inspiration of seeing what is possible. We hear all these examples here and there's many others in the room. We can make a difference on climate. The Prime Minister should do that, but if he doesn't, we're going to do the job. Please thank our fabulous panellists one more time. Thank you. This was a podcast from the 2020 National Climate Emergency Summit. 